0: Welcome to HealthCast. We're your hosts, Melissa Harris and Faith Ryan. The United States and the world as a whole are currently grappling with one of modern history's
1: most widespread and uncertain medical challenges, COVID-19. The virus has spread globally, closing down economies, infecting millions of people within weeks, and as of this recording, killing about 300,000 people globally and over 80,000 in the United States. But COVID-19 isn't just a physically taxing and deadly disease, It has also drastically changed our way of life and quality of mental health.
0: We're grappling with the anxiety of COVID-19 and the grief from loss of loved ones. People are sheltering inside, often alone and without the support and everyday resources they need to overcome anxiety,
1: depression, substance abuse disorder, and a variety of other mental illnesses and disabilities. With the policy enforcements on physical distancing for safety, many are faced with having to alter their way of receiving health care and how they go about getting the help they may need. But ongoing and recent federal public health efforts are supporting telemedicine and mobile apps to bridge the gap between those who are struggling with their mental health and the healthcare professionals who can help them. This month of May is Mental
0: Health Awareness Month, and now, more
1: than ever, it's important to tackle mental health challenges and discuss treatment, accessibility, and resources. In this May HealthCast miniseries... Federal mental health leaders will discuss how their telehealth programs and mobile apps have helped people, both in general and now as we combat COVID nineteen.
0: This first episode, we were joined virtually by Dr. Nora Volkov, a world-renowned psychiatrist who, since two thousand three, has served as director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Dr. Volkov, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, uh, thanks very much. Good morning.
0: Good morning. Let's start off by talking about your role as the director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Could you please go over your top priorities at the agency?
2: The agency's main mission is to develop knowledge that can help us understand um, addiction and, and in the process how to properly prevent it and treat it. Very much the priority is driven by the responsibility to provide with better solutions to the problem of drugs and their consequences to humans. And as a result of that, We take advantage of scientific advances and knowledge in other fields in order to address the problem that we're dealing with. And when one addresses issues of priority, one needs to consider the overall priority on the long range, but also come to recognize that because things and circumstances can change abruptly, as was happening right now with covid and that was preceded by the opioid epidemic, as an institute, we have to have the flexibility to be able to address those issues that require urgent solutions, while at the same time, keep the main goal and mission ahead. So this is handling, multitasking both of those issues, the long-term goals, and also having the flexibility to address urgent needs, such as the one that we're currently
0: experiencing. This is a very urgent situation. With the current COVID-19 pandemic, what are some of the significant challenges and perhaps unique risks that some people specifically struggling with substance abuse and addiction during this difficult time are experiencing?
2: The challenges are at, at multiple levels, and one of them is physiological. I mean, the drugs affect our bodies in ways that can make it much more vulnerable to adverse outcomes. For example, if you have a long history of smoking cigarettes, you're very likely to have pulmonary damage. Similarly, if you have a history of taking cocaine or methamphetamine, you're very likely to also have problems with your heart, your blood vessels, and pulmonary function, all of which will then make you more vulnerable to adverse consequences if you do get infected with COVID. So that's at the level of what do drugs do to our body. But there are other components that relate to social and healthcare issues. One of them is that the COVID pandemic has arrived amidst an opioid crisis that, as a society, we were trying to actually address using evidence. And the evidence is to provide with treatments for medication for this opioid addiction But in order to be able to do that, we need to have a healthcare system that can accommodate the needs of these patients. And the systems right now are overwhelmed with the deluge of patients suffering from COVID. Also, as part of the treatment of people that become addicted, whether it's opioids or any other addiction, is the crucial component of social support systems. And without them, with social distancing, what's happening is we are removing many of the supports that we have in the community that facilitate people to stay in recovery or achieve recovery or to control the consumption of drugs. And those are actually being terribly curtailed. And that in and of itself poses two major risks. On the one hand, we have less number of people that can receive treatment, and on the other one... The systems that were there to support them are no longer there. So, the fear is, and this has been conveyed already by communities, that many of the patients are relapsing, that in some of these communities, they have started to observe significant increases, what appear to be significant increases in mortality from overdoses, because the systems are not there to provide that support. And that is a major, major worry. At and the third element that is, too, very much associated with groups that are vulnerable and people that take drugs are vulnerable is that their conditions are much worse. So, for example, the rate of homelessness is much greater among people that take drugs. And many of the people that are homeless actually have problems with drugs. And, too, many of them end up in the justice setting, in prisons or jails. And both homelessness and prisons and jails are places where infections can happen very, very rapidly. And that is the third element that is placing people taking drugs at much greater vulnerability.
0: So you pioneered the use of brain imaging to investigate basically the effects of drugs in the human brain, and you've demonstrated that addiction is a brain disease, while technology plays a critical role in scientific research and drug development. But I was just wondering, how can technology address challenges due to social distancing guidelines and stay-at-home orders to those who rely on in-person treatments, counseling, or just maintaining social connection in general during COVID-19? You mentioned homelessness is a huge issue for people experiencing drug addiction.
2: Yeah, no, and I, and I think that obviously technology has been extraordinarily important, uh, the advances in technology, but particularly in communication technologies through cell-based and through web-based contacts. First of all, it has provided the opportunity of expanding the reach of the healthcare system. So now, for example, and this has also one of the positive components has been that because it was not possible to provide with the treatment of people that require it in healthcare, since it's burdened by so many patients suffering from COVID, what has happened is that the rules that require that in order for you as a physician to provide buprenorphine to a patient, you have to physically see them. Those have been changed, and now you can actually do the first contact with the patient via telehealth and provide and prescribe the medications that may, you can prescribe the buprenorphine that way, and that has made it much easier for patients to be initiated in treatment and to be followed in treatment because it enables someone that may be in a rural community that has no access to nearby healthcare. And now with COVID, where transportation is even further curtailed, it makes it possible for them to have alternative treatments. There are also applications that have emerged that actually, for example, enable the people to have group meetings. So you have Alcoholic Anonymous or Narcotic Anonymous that are very helpful for some patients in order to keep them engaged and sustain their sobriety. And this is now possible with cell-based, as I mentioned. So this, again, opens up the opportunity an alternative to the physical meetings to have some level of social support. And similarly, through these applications, you can receive behavioral treatments or cognitive interventions. So these technologies have made it possible to expand the number of people that we can treat and provide support either from medical interventions or for group support systems that are very helpful, not just for substance use disorder, but for other conditions. And that has been a quite extraordinary. Another component that I think will have an enormous impact in terms of if we use it properly to improve the outcomes of people that have a substance use disorder or other mental conditions that puts them in a social situation of economic deprivation is that through these technologies, we can now have learning and teaching so we can educate people such that they are better able to then find a job that then can provide them with some, some security, economical security. And that's something I think it's definitely deserve exploring and is relevant because what we have observed in a paper that Dayton published four or five years ago in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science which he comments about the diseases of despair that are actually killing Americans, many Americans, and that are decreasing the life expectancy of Americans. And what he shows is that this is in subsequent work, that this is this predominantly in white American, middle-class Americans that are in areas with very poor education. And he identifies the lack of education and opportunity as the one driving these diseases of despair. One of them is overdoses, a second one is suicide, and the third one is cirrhosis, predominantly from alcohol, but presumably also from obesity, morbid obesity. So that recognition that education is a component very early on, overall as a universal strategy for ensuring that you provide resilience to people, that may protect them later on against uh, taking drugs or against uh, mental health challenges is an important one and one that has been possible by the expansion of the technology. So these are just two examples. Obviously, in the world of medicine, there are many, many other examples that have resulted out of innovation of how we use these tools.
0: Yeah, it's incredible how fast people and healthcare systems in general are adopting telehealth services, but also trying to educate people on how to use them. Are other technologies such as medical devices being used in tandem with remote telehealth services or virtual clinics to combat both addiction and COVID-19?
2: Yes, there's, I mean, we, and as an agency, for example, at NIDA, we are trying to encourage in our grand, me- we have a grand mechanism for small businesses and innovations to actually promote that space. For example, one of the problems that has been, not as of now, has been an issue in treatments for substance use disorders is that one of the interventions is that you need to actually monitor that the patients are not taking drugs. And you usually do this by testing of urine and seeing that there are no drugs or metabolites of these drugs in the urine. And that actually has been shown to be an intervention that helps people, actually helps them stay sober. But with the social distancing, this has become very, very difficult. So then now there are tools and innovations to try to actually counteract that uh, a way of enabling via cell phone like these ones to actually Actually, monitor that the urine is indeed being taken from the patient. Another example of a really remarkable innovation is the notion that when you are actually taking opioids and you overdose, you overdose, you stop breathing. And what happens is you lose consciousness. And if someone does not administer the antidote, which is naloxone, because it blocks the receptor, it pushes the heroin or the fentanyl that is binding to that receptor, it pushes it out like that. And that leads you to recover your consciousness and to breathe, but someone has to see you. And so if you are in social distancing and you're taking drugs, Who's going to give you the naloxone? So an area of innovation that we've been pushing researchers to work on is an auto-injector of naloxone, a device that, for example, you could wear in your wrist that is monitoring your oxygen or your breathing such that if it detects that you're going into an overdose, it can then deliver naloxone. And researchers are working on this and it looks promising. An interesting sidetrack on this as the situation is dire in many communities is now there is also a cell phone application that if you are going to be taking heroin or an opioid by yourself, You dial this number and a person responds and that person will stay with you while you're injecting and will be asking you periodically, can you hear me? And if there's no response, then the person on the other side of the cell phone assumes that the individuals may have lost consciousness. Calls in an emergency signal, and naloxone is delivered to that person to resuscitate them. So, this is an example about how using a technology like this one, we can become creative in ways of providing some support for people that need them. Many other innovations are going on in the whole field. Because I think that in a a strange way, and we know this, that necessity is the mother of creation. So if we are in need of something, there's nothing that incentivizes more our creative juices to come up with a solution. So in many ways, I mean, it's very tragic, I mean, certainly what we're all experiencing with COVID, but the side that it's also, there's a positive side, I mean, all of this tragedy, I mean, that always certainly makes me smile, and that's the notion of creativity and the ability also of humans to come together for a common solution, and that is very nice to see.
0: Yeah, I think that's incredible and inspiring. This pandemic has significantly changed how people are treated it seems. And I'm just wondering, will this pandemic change how people view seeking help in the future or effectively seek help in the future? Well, it is. I
2: mean, it's an interesting because to me as I look at the pandemic, I mean, I think I think it epitomizes we were honest with each other, something that is very human. I mean, we have heard of the Hispanic pandemic of the flu. And they said, well, it's happening a hundred years. And we knew that theoretically it was possible, but we practically never embraced that reality. And I think that for many of us, we've been faced with a situation that could Potentially so dramatically that it has dramatically changed the way we live. I think September 11 did that in a different way. But it actually, even then, it was much more constrained to what we are living. So we had never experienced this. And I think that when you say, How is it going to change? I think it forces us to actually recognize that this can happen and not be complacent. And so that's what I would hope that out of this experience that we emerge as a social system that no longer accepts complacency because of the probability that it will never happen. Because even though the probability is low, I mean, it's more than 100 years since the Spanish flu, the consequences are so tragic that we cannot afford to be complacent. And the other aspect that I think is very good, is that it actually gives us a moment where we can, obviously, in the most objective way that I've ever seen in my life, understand how extraordinarily important science is. Because we will get out of this problem because scientific solutions will be delivered. Of course, we need a social system that will make those scientific solutions available to everybody. So we need to marry those two concepts, scientific innovation and our social responsibilities, so that the scientific um, gifts that are given when we have treatments or vaccines become available for everyone. So there are two fields. So we can advance, and we've advanced a lot in terms of science. But in parallel, we have to advance in social models that allow for equity of support and treatment in a situation like the one that we're currently living.
0: Well. Wow. Lastly, I wanted to point out that May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And given your background as a psychiatrist and also a scientific researcher, what steps can people or society in general take to support eliminating this large public health issue like stigma or just negative energy surrounding people with drug addiction issues?
2: as you're speaking about mental health, I mean, I think that and mental illness, I've always considered substance use disorder as one of the mental illnesses. And like any other mental illnesses, all of the mental illnesses are stigmatized. And they're stigmatized to a certain extent, because when we don't understand something, we become afraid of it. And we therefore just sort of say, reject it and don't want to. And that leads a lot to the stigmatization. As we again, how things change. And you were asking me about COVID and the transformation. I think that very clearly, I mean, we don't know how many people are currently infected with COVID. It could be anywhere between 25%, as it has been reported in New York City, to say 2% or less. But what is clear, all of us are being affected to a different degree by the stress that it entails of the uncertainty. And so that is making us aware that the issue of mental illness, the issue of anxiety, depression, distress that characterizes mental illness or mental psychiatric disorders is basically part of our own constitution as humans. I mean, we react to a world and some people react to it more than others. But by the fact that we all in different levels are experiencing that anxiety, that stress, and we cope with it differently. Some people may take drugs. Some people may become horrifically depressed. is giving us an insight and empathy towards, I think, what we in the past have rejected as the other with mental diseases. So in a way, it's bringing us face to face with our own vulnerabilities as it relates to how we may react emotionally and mentally to a very stressful environment. So as we navigate May, the month of mental illness, and we are all confronted with our own challenges with dealing with the stress of this pandemic that is hitting everyone 100%. That's where we are with the stress of the pandemic. We, I hope, uh, will learn to be much more understanding and empathic of those suffering from mental illnesses, and that that will help basically erode um, the stigma that has lingered for so many years.
0: Yeah, well, I definitely see the positive outlook after everything that we've just talked about. So, Dr. Volkov, thank you so much again. I really appreciate the time learning from you about the innovation and creativity coming out of this space with technology, as well as how we respond to and overcome challenges people face when it comes to drug addiction and mental illness in general during this time.
2: Thanks very much for your interest and thanks for having me.
0: HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com podcasts. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris, Adam Patterson, and Faith Ryan. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsoragovernmentcio.com.